Jamie Dimon is the chairman and CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase and is widely regarded as one of the top bankers in the world. He's the son of Greek immigrants. And although a third generation banker, his career didn't come easy. I went, when I was fired from City, okay, I don't know if you know that. So I went from working the eight hours a week to zero. However, there's no doubt that his outspoken leadership style is a large contributor to his success. That friggin' door, that's open to anybody, and it's all about what's right for the company, the client, or the community. It's got nothing to do with who you are. I'm Miles Fisher, and this is Coffee with the Greats, a podcast that picks the minds of giants to try and find out what it means to be great and how we get there. Joining me in this interview is a former central banker and my dad, Richard Fisher. In our first episode, we chat with Jamie Dimon about growing up in Queens, what he learned from Abe Lincoln, and how he went from losing his job to becoming one of the top bankers in the world. Three of my grandparents immigrated from Greece, and like a lot of the people, never finished high school. One of them I know was educated. He, I went to a rather good high school, but uh, he came here, and he's the, he's the one I got to know quite well, and I was very close to Panos. He changed the name, it was Demetriou, changed the name to Diamond. Uh, this is your um, father's father. This is my father's father. Uh, and my, my grandmother, who I also knew, the other two died much younger. Uh, she was born in Hell's Kitchen. She was half Greek, half Italian. Mm-hmm. Uh, her parents were all immigrants. She also never finished high school. He came here like most people. Didn't have as fascinating stories as your father, but he came here like most people, penniless. Uh, and, you know, he, as he would describe it to me, he waited and clean things and lived in a, what they called cold flats back then because they had no heating. Uh, but eventually, he, had, he was smart. He kind of worked his way up and somehow ended up going working at a, uh, a bank called the Atlantic Bank. And actually, I got the annual report once. <laughs> it was 40% owned by the National Bank of Greece. Huh. And you open up the annual report and it was a president and he eventually became the vice president. This is back in the days was one vice president. <laughs> this was before World War II. Back then, banks used to execute stock trades for individuals, and he decided that, you know what, he, he loved stocks, and that he could do that directly and make more money, so he became a stockbroker for Shearson Hamill, um, my, you know, kind of bribed my father to go do that. My father was interested in being a violinist and played violin until he died. Uh, uh, but my, so my, I think it starts with my grandfather. My grandfather was a wonderful man. I miss him. Uh, he, he ended up speaking six languages. You know, he's one of those, he read a lot. He, he walked miles a day. Uh, um, Did you, and, was and, he and, in a household and, that you grew up in? No, but we saw, we, we saw them every weekend. And, you know, we have family dinners at 3 o'clock. We still have family dinners every weekend, pretty much. So whoever's around, you know, comes and congregates. Until my parents died, they came almost every weekend, my brother and stuff like that. So very smart, very ethical. Uh, like a lot of immigrant families, the second generation didn't grow. They grew up in Greek town, but not a, a Greek town, not Greek town. And then they moved out. And uh, so my my parents, I would tell you the most important thing, they very moral. I mean, almost moralistic. Like hmm. they weren't religious, but they were moralistic. They strongly believed in right and wrong. Do your best. Hmm. Tell the truth. Uh, treat people properly. So if I didn't treat someone properly, they would get very mad, including like defending the people being picked on. You know, don't uh, don't be the bully and don't allow the bully to pick on, you know, the the, the someone being picked on. So, uh, uh, so we kind of grew up with that all the time. Do do your best, uh, educate. You know, they were big into education as a lot, a lot of the immigrants were education, education. And uh, so I think it's just a, the kind of a moral core that you learn from all of that over time. Uh, and when you get punished for something you didn't do or something like that, and we used to get punished, uh, and they and they loved, they were intellectuals. Huh. So my parents and my grandfather, they're reading. So I actually read that Graham and Dodd book yeah. in high school. My father's doc in, in high school, the yeah. big thick one, Securities yeah. Analysis, and, hmm. and uh, foundations. Warren Buffett yeah. was taught my, on that. My mother was a Freudian. Oh. I, I read most of Freud in high school and college, like almost all those books. I was a, a big reader and stuff like that. And, uh, and I, so I don't know where EQ comes from. I know it's true. We see it in how you people treat people and whether they have any form of uh, humanity and humility. And I don't mean humble humility. I mean, humility means they treat everyone equally and fairly. And, uh, they'll, you know, right here I tell people, I want you to treat the people who clean the bathrooms the same way you treat CEOs. And I'm quite serious about it, by the mm-hmm. way. And, uh, uh, so I, you know, I, I think that was just part of the how you were supposed to treat people, and so um, that's kind of the lessons I learned. My grandfather was just a was a fascinating guy, a very very sweet man. He was on his deathbed, and I told him that I was about to become the CFO of Primerica, <laughs> Primerica run by Sandy Wow. Yeah, I'm sure yeah, you yeah. met at one point, and uh, and to him that was 
the CFO of a Fortune 500 company. Incredible. And it still it tears me up to, to see that he missed mm. finding out that I became chairman and CEO of J.P. Morgan. I mean, just imagine that. You know, he, he, to him, that would have been almost impossible. And probably back then, it would have been almost impossible a Greek immigrant would make it that far. Brilliant. Yeah. So, and you, you have a few siblings? I have a, a twin brother. A fraternal? Older, or, or? Fraternal and an older brother. The older brother went to MIT. He's a physicist. Uh, uh, totally different, <laughs> but, but we're, we're close. He lives in Chicago. My twin brother is totally different, too. He's a teacher, huh. uh, a philosopher. He can play. He's a musician, uh, which that was my, came out my father's side because my father was quite a musician, too. Uh, but if you actually, and if you met us, you, you recognize the, the, the inner core is the same. Yeah. How we treat people, how we approach things, how we both work hard at whatever our given profession is. And you know, my parents always said, do what you do, just do it well. Be good at it and be productive in life. Like, add to society. You know, don't just take. And so, um, so I see my brother lives in New York and he, he comes over almost every weekend too. My, my mother, so James's grandmother, used to say, don't let your brains go to your head. Yeah. And uh, obviously you have that capacity. You've been successful. Well, you, and you've seen this many times before where there's a great quote from John Weinberg at Goldman Sachs. Some, yeah. The big, bigger the job, that some grow into it and some swell into it. <laughs> and I've seen it over and over the and swelling. over. They, they, they're doing this and all of a sudden they have this big job and mm. they, you're shocked at how they take it. Like somehow they think they're the king of the earth and that they know everything. In fact, what you learn more is that you know less. Mm. Like you actually have to rely on a lot more people because you can't possibly know all the things that they're all doing all the time. So, it's, but those it's, guys fall the quickest. Those people, those men and women that they do. And if they if they have a lot of IQ, they could cover it up for a long time. Yeah, and then it becomes a bigger fall. And then it becomes a bigger fall because they they stifle things. They don't want to. They they're in at the heart of it is some insecurity. They don't want to look stupid. They want to know everything. They have. They they don't like the fact you know a lot more about something than they do. Hmm. So they st- they tend not to ask your opinion because, you know, if they say, "Well, explain that to me," it means they didn't know. Yeah. So, exactly. So often you see that take place in conversations at big companies and. And it, w- growing up, were you outside of the dining room table and outside the classroom? What was what was your life like, as far as your your interests? I mean. You're reading security analysis and well, and Freud. Who, what who, posters who you, did no, no, you have I, on your I wall? was I was normal. I was chasing girls most of the time, and and Fair I, I played all the sports and stuff like I played all the sports and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, I was captain of my team and this team, and and uh, I, I I wasn't great. I was okay at school. I did well at school, but at school didn't interest me that much. To tell yeah. the truth, I loved history, and I like reading more than I like school. And I think I'm actually I think school makes some of these things harder. Like, I would have loved to study history, but when I went to college, it was so boring, the way they taught it. But I but still, most of the books I read are history books yep. and biographies, and you learn. But you, you were. But, but I, was a, I was a kind of a scrappy kid. You know, I was pretty tough, and, and uh, my brother was little. I always had a, he would always get in a fight, and I had to defend uh, So him. no wonder you had to defend the guys who were being picked on. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and I had a violent reaction. I would step into things I should never have stepped into. I wouldn't, even I didn't like the guy. I yeah. wanted to kick him myself, you know, but uh, yeah. so... Um, I had a lot of friends. We had a lot of groups and kids and parties. And stay, same with college. I mean, yeah. I was I partied quite a bit. <laughs> I say a lot of college was a fog. Were there any yeah. teachers that inspired you, or any coaches that inspired you, or any yeah, people outside of, the family? Yeah. So there was a teacher in high school who was avoiding the Vietnam War, hmm. and I can remember his name because there's a building in Yale named after the family. Hmm. And I saw his wife recently, literally, and I haven't seen him since eighth grade or ninth grade and i remember saying to her just tell your husband hi i said i just want to he was a fabulous teacher and uh she was he was he always talked about how bad he was he said, no the kids loved him and he taught us and he cared and he had heart and he made it fun and you know like back then a lot of teachers really didn't care they, they didn't like the students they were angry at us you know we were <laughs> privileged kids or whatever it was and and uh so he, i wish i could remember his name right now because he was a great guy and uh and in college, you know, there were one or two of those. In business school, there were one or two of those. And, and, you know, I tell people, and I also learned a lot by watching other people. Hmm. So, you know, I worked for Sandy Wild for a long time. I, I, tell people, I learned what to do and what not to do. He did stuff I would never do. I wouldn't treat people that way. I didn't right. run things that way. But I watch all of you, you know, all these years, like how people deal with the situation, a tough question, a tough situation with people. Uh, did you know Bob Lip by any chance? Mm-hmm. I know a hell of a lot from Bob Lip. With my partner at uh, you know City Travis for all those years, and um, 
Andy Pearson, David Novak, you know, mm-hmm. who ran, ran Yum Brands. I used to see how he would talk to the board. He doesn't have the board called since we last met. I, I do that every time now. Hmm. So if you're my board, I take you through that. I always say that was David's idea, but it's a great way to keep a board up to date. Here is what happened since we last met that I think is important. And so, um, so I learned a lot from it. I learned a lot by reading. You know, just how did Abe Lincoln handle temper? It's pretty good. You know, like, if you like, had one book to give to somebody, what would it be? Other than security analysis. No, I, I, that wouldn't be it. <laughs> it. It would probably... Well, it depends be, on how close friends you are. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Someone you like, if you want to give them a book. It, it would probably be a book about... A, a biography about Abe Lincoln or something like that. Fantastic. And I have a favorite book list that I sent to anyone who asked me. It's, it's history, business, and other. Other is things like... Uh, you know, some math books or right. Um, I love some. You know, the I was looking at the list uh, just before us meeting, and there are a few books across the board that uh, several guests on this podcast have recommended. Guns, Germs, and Steel is almost Fabulous. unanimously Fabulous recommended. Mind Randall Stevenson loved that book, and we're both big Teddy Roosevelt fans. I know the Rise of Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy is one Roosevelt. Of the books you recommend. Oh, I read. I've read almost lots of these presidential biographies. Yeah, but also Nelson Mandela. Uh, I love books like Guns, Germs, and Steel. Like there's a, a book, a great one. You should read it called The Short History of Nearly Everything. Everything yeah. Bill Bryson. Yeah. But he takes you through all of science, all of what we know about the brain, all of what we know about the universe, all of what we know, the big universe, then atoms and mm-hmm. subatoms. And uh, it's just fascinating. And, and what mankind has done over time. And it's the last, there's another great one, The Better Angels of Our Nature. Mm-hmm. I assume it's on my book list. Just, it just you don't think about it that way because it's, you know, we look at, we read the paper every day, and you know, focus too much on what's happening now, but what happened over a long arc is pretty important. You've always been very, very curious in more than your immediate surroundings. So when you were an undergraduate at Tufts, you were also, uh, you had a double major. You also read psychology yeah. a little bit. Is that correct? Yeah. That's the Freudian side. That's right. <laughs> well, so when did you, I'm curious, when did you know uh, early on, firmly on your own terms, that this was your calling, that you wanted to go into finance yeah. and, uh, and set about a career on this. Yeah. So first of all, I started with poli-sci. I thought it just sounded really neat. And it was just boring. And then I took some history, and it, it, I found it boring, the way they taught it. And then I, by li- economics, I like you know, how the world operates and stuff mm-hmm. like that, and then psychology, how people operate and how they think. And it was a little bit of a Freudian. I was not a Freudian, but a little bit of a Freudian me. Uh, I knew more when I graduated when I graduated school, I was thinking about going to law school or business school. I was thinking about doing a joint degree. And then I did something which I think is wise. I went to sit in in the classes. Hmm. And I'd already applied, but after I sat in class, I realized I didn't want to be a lawyer. And it's very technical, and you're actually learning procedure and precedent. I thought you're, yeah. you're learning justice. No. Like uh, the Constitution, it's really it's kind of very remote from that. And, I, and even today, I say to people, if you're not going to be a lawyer, I don't think you should get a three-year law degree. Mm. You know, I think it's kind of a waste of time. Right. So I was interested much more in business. I also knew I didn't want to be a, uh, a doctor. I didn't want to be a lawyer. Uh, I didn't, you know, so I had to list things I didn't want to do. But I, if you ask me my calling, so I, I go to a business school. What I liked more than finance, now finance I grew up with a little bit. I right. bought and sold stocks. I so it was a natural thing. I also thought finance, and I still think finance, has this very broad view of the world. So if you go into, and I don't want to make fun of anybody, but if you go to, to certain industries, it's a very narrow thing. You're dealing with narrow customers, narrow industries. Uh, but, you know, finance, when you wake up in the morning, almost everything in that paper is going to affect you, your clients, values, countries, companies. Uh, so I, I do think it's fascinating. And, um, but, I, but my calling is more to be part of building something. And so I, w- I had job offers at Goldman Sachs, Lehman, and Morgan Stanley. But I went to work as Sandy Wild's assistant at American Express. He just sold Shearson there. And the reason for that is my, and my father worked at Shearson Hamill. It's a small brokerage firm. The reason for that was because he had built this brokerage firm. He's, I think he sold it for a billion dollars. But he had built it from almost nothing to, I forgot, 5,000 brokers hmm. doing mergers and deals and buying and and that, that fascinated me. I wanted to be part of building something. Hmm. So when I joined, I think I could do it in a different industry too. But obviously, the industry itself may not have been as important as my desire to be part of a team building something. So I want to drill down on that a little bit. The law is basically based on precedent, and that's what you have to be knowledgeable. That's what they teach. Businesses, and finance especially, it's decision-making under total conditions of uncertainty. That's correct. Trying to narrow down the uncertainty, but it can't right. be totally narrowed down. Right. So is that what challenges you? Is that... I went, when I was fired from City, okay, I don't know if you know that. So I went from working the eight hours a week to zero. Huh. And here's what I really missed. And this is kind of answering your question. I missed the camaraderie. 
I miss showing up in an office. It could have been at the Federal Reserve where you walk in and you got people to talk to and you have issues to deal with. I missed it. You know, the cry of like being on a team. I missed the, I'm going to say the crusade. But think of that as fighting for something. Mm-hmm. You have something to accomplish with that camaraderie, that team. And have you you played team sports? Oh, yeah. Yep. If you ever played a team, anyone who's played a team sport understands what it feels like to have a team that's functioning well. And esprit de corps. It's a, and you, there's no feeling like in the world. It's esprit de corps. And the third is I miss the intellectual challenge. Mm. And so, and I would miss those things today. Having some argue about, and as you said, it's not perfect. People aren't perfect. Organizations aren't perfect. And and but it's a hugely challenging thing to deal with it all the time. The, you know, and the competition and the people and what's going on. And so, uh, so I, those are the things that kind of turn me on. And uh, I didn't know at all. I mean, if you would ask me, do you want to be a CEO? I wouldn't, I didn't know what being a CEO meant. Sure. You know, I didn't, until I had met Sidney Well, I'd never met one. <laughs> you know, so it was not, it was remote. Until I went to a big company, I didn't know how you compare up to all these people. Huh. You know, so it wasn't like, I said, that's my, I don't think it should be someone's goal. I just want to be part of that team. I didn't know what my position would be yet. I just want to be part of that team. But you mentioned a setback yeah. you, when you were fired. Right. Uh, how did you deal with that? How, how old were you? Where were you in your was, life at the time? I had been, I'd been working for Sandy Wild for 15 years. We had, and I was the president and chief operator of Travelers. Then we merged with City. I became the city president for a very short period of time. Uh, and I was totally surprised. You know, which you honestly, sure. you should look at and say, I shouldn't have been because a lot of telltale signs, but, yeah, yeah, but, but I, I missed them at the time. <laughs> uh, and I, and so we had, and it, it was great. We had started as one little company and that company called Commercial Credit bought Smith Barney, Primerica, Travelers, Shearson, and uh, eventually merged with City as equals and, um, uh, and it's done extremely well. Very opportunistic, by the way. It's not like, you know, we have, mm-hmm. this is much more driven by strategies around our businesses. There's nothing wrong with being opportunistic in business. And uh, uh, they, I had 100 people at my house on a Sunday. We're, about to, we're going to have a management meeting at 4. Sandy calls me up at 12 and says, can you be here at 1 instead? And I said, I can't. I got 100 people there. We're recruiting for uh, Solomon Smith Barney. You know, it's, it's important you come up. So I went up, and him and John Reed sat across the, the way. So I mean, we're going to make some management change. They explained some of this, and then we want you to resign. Ah. I said, Okay. And John Reed said, is that it? I said, well, you obviously have decided. Right. And I said, and I, I, I knew they obviously spoke with the board and it was all done. They'd probably written the press release and all that. And, uh, and I stayed for the management team to come. I told them that it's a great company. I wish you the best. If I can help anyone. Uh, I did the pr- I press with them. I sat down with Chuck Prince and went through the press release and approved it. Uh, but I was, I was fine. You know, I actually, I tell people it was my net worth, not my self-worth that was involved. Huh. I went home. I That's explained it to my girls. Uh, I said I was fired, and I tried to explain what being fired means because the girls were like 12, 10, and 8 or something like that. Uh, uh, <laughs> that night, about 20 or 30 people came to my house huh. just to give me a hug, you know, thank me, tell me that they, if they could help me. And one by one, they'd walk in and say, I work for your daddy. Not anymore, you don't. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And so I was, I was fine, you know. And some people treated me like I had leprosy. Right. Hmm. And some people treated me like I was Robin Hood. Hmm. Yeah, Jamie Attaway, show him, <laughs> stick it to him. And, and so, uh, but, you know, it was, I had a falling out with Sandy. And it was obvious that's what it was. And, and, uh, um, and did you allow yourself then a little bit of time? What did the next morning look like? Did you exhale and say, I'm going to take yeah. a month or yeah. just to? I, I mean, I had to negotiate out. That took several months. They were very rude and tough on that. Uh, but yeah, it was. I was fired in November. It took me to March to leave. To, to go, I was out the door. I mean, I was literally out the next day. It, it took me that much time to finish the contract. I wrote. If I said a thousand letters to people who'd written me, mm. I wrote a thousand letters back. Everyone who wrote me, I wrote mm. a letter back. Uh, and I didn't. I was in no rush. You know, people say you have a shelf life. You know, you have a, So the, the, a lot of these people are saying you have a shelf life. So I, I took any incoming call, but I didn't investigate a lot of them. I was very polite. You, know, you offered jobs that are. You would consider insulting, but you know, I said, whatever. Any job's a job, and mm-hmm. by then I just took my kids to, to Europe for the summer and did a luxury leisure trip, and and then in September I started going to work seriously. I was offered tons of things, including Al Gore came to see me about national finance chair. It was I think the last year of the campaign or something, and I, I like to make decisions, but you wallow in it, like make believe you're going to do it. What's mm-hmm. your life like? Can you see yourself doing it? And that's how you decide what you want to do. Yeah. I yeah. wrote up. Then I spent, I didn't want to do that because I didn't want to travel a week and I had young kids. And I didn't, and you know, most people do that. They want to be in government. I, mm-hmm. That wasn't my right. objective. 
I like the crusade part. I like the part about seeing the country in a way I probably would never have seen it before. Uh, you know, I started about some of my own private equity, my own merchant bank. I had people, we talked about being partners. I was offered global investment banks in Europe, and I said, I, I'll, I'll, I'll never do it. I don't think these people understand the business, and it's too political, and you know, investment banks are too hard to manage if you don't have the real support from the team and stuff like that. Um, I went to see Jeff Bezos at Amazon. He I hit it off. He was looking for president. I didn't do it. He didn't offer it to me. We never got that far, but he and I are still very close friends because of that. And uh, a bunch of internet companies were offered to me. Huh. But that was just uh, a book uh, company at the time, right? Yeah. Amazon? But I, I, thought yeah. The guy, but I, went to see, I, I went to see a bunch of internet companies. I thought they were all going to go bankrupt. Is that right? And, but his, I thought it was a great strategy, and I thought he was great. He, was, he, he allowed me to sit through a town hall he was doing. Huh. He was honest. He was smart. Uh, he incredible. was fair. He was direct. It wasn't bullshit. It wasn't... Uh, uh, and I, so I thought he was great. Um, uh, then eventually, and a bunch of other, but eventually Home Depot came to see me, and then Bank One. So mm. now I was getting a little restless at that point. Mm. I couldn't fill my day. I couldn't read enough. I had taken a boxing. Uh, <laughs> I didn't. Think, you know, and you do. There's a, a little bit of concept of shelf life. And loved Home Depot. Hmm. And you probably know Arthur Blank, Bernie Marcus, and and uh, Ken Langone. So I was now I was assigned to the two of them, and at the one. Uh, I thought they were great. I loved how they were as people. I loved how they ran the company. I loved their heart, their soul. I told them I don't know anything about merchandising. I told them, in fact, when two guys called me, I had never been in a Home Depot. Okay? They said, we don't care. We'll teach you. We want the person. Yeah. We want the EQ, like the heart. Right, right. We want someone who respects people in the stores. And, and, uh, uh, and then Bank One. But, and the reason I chose Bank One wasn't, I loved them more. It was a troubled bank and all these problems. And they'd done these deals where we're failing. And, it's just like it's been my profession. I spent all my life knowing financial services. I can walk, a, I look at a the credit fit. book or a trading floor, and I know what it means. And I also figured, you know, it, it, whatever I get, it's going to be troubled. It's, you know, if there are 30 big financial companies, how many are going to change their CEO in several years? Six? Huh. Right. You know, how many are going to go inside? Four or five? Huh. The only one's going to go outside if someone have a problem generally, and that this is my choice, chance. I had to move, and uh, which is hard, a little hard in the family at that age. And, uh, but I, I looked at it, it's just, it was going to be a canvas. It's, it's what you make it. I didn't know how good it was. It was. I, I, of course, I read everything about it, but uh, I, I knew the board had huge, it was 22 people and they hated each other you know, from the deal. <laughs> I knew all those things. I was like, you know what? It'll be okay. I'm just going to give it my all. And I, I bought a lot of stock as a way of kind of like tying myself to the, to the, the boat. Mast. I told the board, yeah. I'm here for good. I bought the stock. I'm going to tell you the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, including at one point that you're, the board's too big and that I don't really care if you're Bank One or First Chicago. The only thing you should ever protect in this boardroom is what's right for the client or the company. Good. Period. I said, I need you to do that. I need you to help me do that because the scars of all this war continued, and, which they all agreed. They were great. They said, you're absolutely correct. And um, so... So on but, that note, you, you said nobody... The, nobody's ready to be a CEO. You can read as many, but until you're doing it, you either swell into it or grow in. Uh, and you, it seems that throughout your life, you've been a keen observer. You observe people and you've had mentors. There are a lot of good CEOs out there, but a truly exceptional one is a rare bird and, and very valuable. How, how do you define the difference between good and truly exceptional? to manage a huge, huge yeah. company with a global so I'll, I'll tell you some lessons I've learned about this. So I, and you can't really separate people. It's even hard to separate all the, and EQ is much more complicated than IQ because there's so many different parts. You know, IQ, there are different parts too, like you might be good in math or English or language or, but EQ is even far more complex than that. But EQ uh, is technically emotional quotient, right? It's emotional quotient, but it's, it's you know, do you recognize body language? Right. Do you understand when someone's hurting? Can you, when you're talking to a crowd, you know that they're not, they're, they're not, they're not relating to you. Do you, do you know how to, uh, do you feel, do you, have, you have empathy? I mean, I, I go on and on about what EQ is. And uh, so I guess, but so management is kind of in a, important way is facts, analysis, detail, get the right people, follow up, discipline, facts, analysis, detail. And it is, it is hard. You got to do it all the time. Facts, detail, sales, balance sheet, numbers, people, you know, but it's not this, but being a real leader, it's not that because I, yeah. you got to ask you a question and I've made this mistake. Would you work for that person? Mm. Would you want your kid to work for that person? So very often I've promoted people. The answer would have been no, mm. because you think they're kind of a jerk. Where they they're kind of arrogant, and sometimes you have no choice because you mm. inherited it, and you mm. you know you, you can't change. You don't know how to change it right away. But 
But most of us in leaders have learned that leadership is more about humility. And I'm not, I don't mean humble. No one would say Jamie Dimes humble, but I treat everyone the same and I expect the same thing. It's about earning your respect. Mm-hmm. So you'd want to work for me if you think I give a shit. Mm-hmm. If I treat you fairly, if I treat everyone equally. If you think I got my buddies over here, so I can have people I like more, but that friggin' door, that's open to anybody and it's all about what's right for the company, the client, or the community. It's got nothing to do with who you are. And so I'm very careful about, you know, like obviously I like some people more than others, but uh, it's about that you don't, you take the blame because very often it is your fault and you're not trying to shoot people every time something goes wrong. You've seen that in companies. That destroys a company. You know, you have to make changes. But if you embarrass the person who leaves, if you're constantly doing that, who the hell wants to work for you? Right. And it's not about charisma. I know to a lot of CEOs, they just, they just, Home Depot is a great example. You know, Frank Blake goes in there after Bob Nardelli and he's a quiet, unassuming guy and completely restored the culture and the character and, you know, ran it for seven to ten years and everyone would tell you it was just wonderful having him there, but you probably don't, didn't see, he didn't go on TV and I'm not sure he's a great speech giver or was rah-rah. It's not about showing the flags. I tell people, I'm giving a very specific, I do town halls for administrative assistance. I do them wherever I go. I've done them tons in Dallas. Right. So you could say doing that showing respect. Mm-hmm. But I don't do it just to show respect. I do. I stand in front for an hour and answer every question they have. That's even more respect. But the ultimate sign of respect is I always have someone with me, sometimes uh, uh, you know, staff, HR, whoever it is. But we take a list of the things I can't answer. And you get back to them. Yes, in an email to all 300 of them. Mm-hmm. And it might be about the cafeteria. It might be about a payroll system. It might be about you know, why, you know, policies we have. It might be about products. I mean, they're customers of ours. And that's the respect. And that stuff over time generates. So, so leadership is a very different thing to get people to follow you than it is to get people, than it is to be very good at managing or administering something. And, uh, uh, but then, because you, you asked another question, how do you know? You know, I don't know. You get old, you do know, you learn. You do yeah. actually learn. Yeah. And you actually stop making certain mistakes. There are some people very good at interviewing. You, you realize much more, you see the temperament or the EQ or how they treat people and you respond much more to that and you know that this person is going to turn off half the people, not appreciate the, uh, the salespeople. You know, like selling is a hard thing to do. Sure. You know, and it takes a huge amount of empathy and stuff, but a lot of people are like, I'm not going to go to sales. You know, and so if you're in a, an investment bank or, or if they come here and you love the investment bank but you ignore everything else, like operations and back office and the consumer side, you'll end up running a terrible company. So it's all, it's all these other things that you learn over time that are just necessary to do a good job. They'll keep a management team together. They'll have the fortitude. And this, this is hard. Make the right decision. Do the right thing anyway. No matter how unpopular. You can orchestrate it, but you got to do it, including having people leave, who may be even good people, but they have to leave because they're blocking an even better person. You really have no choice. And so people know you're trying to do the right thing. And so um, so you kind of learn those things over time. And by the way, I have, there are several people that are so good at it that I, like, I, I don't make as many mistakes now because I, I would say, I'm bringing, I have all four of us interview them separately, together. And it may be that you actually are much better digging into these things than I am. Huh. Because a lot of us, you interview people, it's like, ah, what do you have in common? Right. Yeah, you right. want to like each other, and you're busy selling each other as opposed to buying. And when you're buying, you're trying to find what they're like. But I, but, and this is, you're young still. There's a book on you already. <laughs> if I wanted to know about you, all I have to do, I never have to even meet you. I can call your friends, your bosses, your peers, your subordinates, your wife, your ex-girlfriends. I'll know so much about you. I'll have a whole dossier on you. Mm. If you're trustworthy, you show up in time, do you give a shit about people, how you act under pressure. And those things, the things that you learn about people over time really matter. So you mentioned boxing. You took up boxing. You also no. use the word canvas, by the way, which makes brings me back to boxing. Did you actually box? Did you learn anything in the ring? Yeah. It's humiliating. Uh, <laughs> so... Always, always pick someone whose arms are shorter than yours are. That was my rule. <laughs> yeah, but you know, I mean, it is really hard. It is the oh, sweet yeah. science. Like, yeah. like you, 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 how many times I did, I actually, the ring, and this, there was a black guy who looked like Mike Tyson was my teacher. I and mean, all the guys that saw him, it's been Barney's fan. They said, Jamie, we pay to have, watch this guy beat you up. <laughs> and he, he could take me down in, in, a, in a 20 seconds, you know, and he probably still do it even after boxing for a year because... You know, you, you, like, it's not natural when your hands are up here, the guy goes, you go like this, boom, in the face. Until they hit you like 40 times. Then you, you learn. Re- th- then you learn to do what they tell you to do, which is keep your hands up and, you know, yep. or 
the guy comes at you, you tend to revert your head or something like that. Once you take your eyes off of someone, you're gone. Huh. So you watch a boxer. They're always, they're always watching. They're always moving, but they're not taking their eye off the guy. It is. And uh, so you learn how hard it is to do. And even, like, you might see a skinny little person or something like that, and they can punch harder than you do. Huh. I don't know why. There's something about their musculature that can just punch harder than you do. And or they can outlast you. I mean, the endurance required. Yeah. And the legs required. It, it, it is truly unbelievable. Do you and still box? No. I can't even barely lift my arm above my shoulder anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I tore my rotator cuff doing it. Like, oh, no. Uh, hitting heavy bag. Years later, I was in a heavy bag. And, you know, I hadn't been boxing for a while. Bad idea. What do you do for fitness? I, a, a bunch of aerobic stuff, lightweights, and I do more and more stretching. <laughs> <laughs> when do you we, do it? Which we have to, in the usually, morning? usually in the morning. So walk Saturday us, and Sunday, I can do it any time of the day. Walk us through your routine during the day. What time do you get up? I usually what, get, do, what do you read? Five, give or take. I read uh, quickly the Daily News because my wife, daughter writes for it. I'm really right. looking ah. for the byline. Ah. Quickly the New York Post because everyone reads the New York Post. New York. <laughs> and, then I, and, I, and I read the front section and generally the editorials and op-eds in the Washington Post. Mm-hmm. And then I read the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, and I read tons of other stuff. All in print? Grand Interest Observer, Gloom, oh, Doom, Boom he, Report. He's the uh, P.G. Woodhouse reports. of uh, finance. Yes. <laughs> he uh, never write, but he writes well. Yeah, economist, <laughs> uh, Council of Foreign Relations, Foreign Affairs. I read tons of stuff. And you and, read it physical, or do and, you read it on... on, on in, I much prefer physical, because I, particularly with the paper, because you tend to scan and see different stuff and then right. it interests you and you read it yeah. but if you do it on online you tend to push all you want to read and yeah and if i have time i make myself read a bunch of stories that i wouldn't naturally read because i want right. to go beyond my natural habitat and uh uh so i read tons of stuff a lot of economic stuff but i you know bridgewater and mm-hmm. and our i think our economists are exceptional and i think some are uh analyst reports people send me tons of stuff transcripts you know, like if you guys gave a speech to somebody, you would often get a, get a transcript and, you know, see what people are saying and stuff like that. And I read a lot of books, more on vacation than during the year. And so uh, so I get up. I, I'm usually done with reading. It usually takes me literally an hour and a half or two hours. So sometimes I exercise for, it's called 45 minutes during the week. Not Usually not longer than that anymore. And that could be aerobic, lightweight, stretching, uh, less running because of just knees and hips and stuff like that. But uh, what, time do you, what time do you go to bed? If you have a choice, any before ten, if I have a choice, yeah, good. Yeah. Wait, but in the, but in the morning, but, but quick I breakfast. Think, are you a coffee guy? I'm coffee, and I I'm just not hungry in the morning. Yeah. If I na- if I wake up naturally, I'd eat at ten. I would exercise and then eat an hour later or something like that. So usually I I, ha- I may have an egg or something like hard boiled egg or something like that, and then but by twelve o'clock I'm starved. I mean I eat at twelve. <laughs> if you wouldn't have lunch with me, I say it's twelve. Yeah, exactly. It's not twelve oh five. It's not twelve fifteen. You do well 12. in Dallas, by the way. Everything's at twelve. Yes. What's the most conducive to deep thinking? Um, when you really need to sit. To, I mean, you write these incredible shareholder meetings, uh, letters, and uh, you write beautifully. When when you really need to sit down and think in complete sentences, it's in your office. You close the door. You right. listen to music. How, how do you how do you like to? Or does someone uh, do it for you? No, I thing? do it. No. Okay. So I how do you do, do it? I do that on weekends, and that actually writing that letter makes you think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I'm asking myself questions and trying to answer them, and in the act of trying to answer it, you realize you're guessing hmm. on some of it. So I dig deeper. So I, I give me this thing in mortgages. Give me this. How did it do this? Why don't we do that exactly? How many more would we have done if we had opened up the FICO score a little bit exactly? So th- so writing makes you think. I think people and it's hard to do and stuff like that. And uh, and then do you will you print it out? Will you read it out loud? Will you send it to two trusted lieutenants? This, no, this the, my chi- my chimmer's letter. Uh, uh, I work with Judy on it, and my wife edits parts of it. And huh. and but I but it goes to everybody. Yeah. And the lawyers, of course, try to change the words. I yeah, often yeah. put them back. Uh, uh, but I, I get there, there's like three or four people give me a lot of comments on it and Warren Buffett calls me every year loves reading and stuff like that and uh, um, but when I think it's very important how you structure your day so I tell people think of it more like a, a week or a year 35% of my time is what I call regular reviews so if you work for me, you know I'm going to go through a business review in this kind of level of detail your agenda, not mine all pre-reads and you have to have the right people there I would criticize you for not having the right people there. Like, why didn't you bring them there? Why are we talking about this and the person you need to collaborate? And by the way, why didn't you collaborate before you got here? Uh You don't have to wait for me to be there to negotiate. You guys can go figure something out. Go figure it out and make a recommendation as opposed to let's read and talk about it. And and then 
and then I do. So my management team meets once a week for a while, once a month for it with the real agenda. I go every business with the real agenda, risk committee once a month, risk committee every week if I'm in town, and it's, it's quite thorough. Uh, there's two of them. There's firm wide. The, there's the uh, market and trading one, um, and technology once a month separately. So the different size. So every cyber once a quarter. It actually takes about a third of my time. Board meeting, and and I travel forty percent of the time. I do the same. And I travel. I do it here. I see clients. I see regulators. I see. I do town halls. I do dinners with management teams, including spouses, if I can. And business reviews. So if I'm in Chile, I do a quick review of Chile, you know, or Argentina, mm-hmm. and do a quick review of Argentina. And so, uh, but surprisingly, and maybe, so, and one of our guys did a big analysis of his counter versus mine. He's com- was completely, actually, it was Jess Daly. Huh. Complete, he, he did it. He said, We do the same iron PR, we do the same amount of travel. My travel is long. I, I go to Asia for two weeks. Huh. He, he ran the investment bank, so he go back and forth, which right. I didn't have to do. But I had 25% white time. I return every phone call and every email every day. Extraordinary. Right. So because I, don't, I won't book things forever, and I don't, you know, I'm very careful what goes on my calendar, and if it needs to be a 15-minute meeting, it's 15 minutes. If the meeting ends early, it's, it's okay. We're done. Leave. You know, if you know, so a lot of meetings that from 9 to 10, well, you know, <laughs> we're done, move on. And there's always be a follow-up list of a meeting. And, uh, and I think you have to do that because people will walk in your door all day long. Sure. And they do here. They call you up, get this done. It keeps things moving. And... Uh, and I still I do that all the time. Just respond so that people know that I saw it and I uh, thought about it. So the, the deeper thinking, we have a real strategic offsite once a week year. We really do work on it, and I could show you the list. It's you and you'd be surprised the depth we go into. But hmm. payment systems, mm-hmm. wholesale, mm-hmm. worldwide competitors, fintech companies, our own consumer payments, and and it's all pre reads. And then with and hopefully in the process of doing that, we're making decisions. Uh, we go through, we'll literally sit there and spend six hours talking about every, you know, the top 200 people in the company, name by name. And what we think of them, how they're doing, what they might want to do next, what we think they should do next, because I think it's a combination of both when you move someone. I say, what do you want? I know what I want, but what do you want? It's your, your life. I don't want to tell you what to do. So we do work for that, and I do a lot of work thinking the weekends. And particularly on Sunday, when I've done a lot of my reading, I've made a list. I make a list of what am I avoiding? What's important? What do I have to think about? And I, and I make a practice of just sitting there and just thinking about it. No reading. It takes a lot of discipline. No TV. Just think about it. And you know. So you make the list on what night? It's usually Sunday. And then do you? That's your guide for the week, unless something comes out yeah, of the blue. I have a FOP list, and I may send emails out that night sometimes. But usually, I just come in. I assign. You know, why would that? Why didn't we do this? Let's do this. Like people know when I come in Monday. Oh shit! Here he comes. Like, <laughs> but but I also make the list of. There's a little com called Think About, mm-hmm. and I'll, li- I'll just a little think about it. Yeah. You know, so it could be a policy issue. It could be, you know, it could be why why what happens if Amazon goes into banking? <laughs> like, <laughs> it could be so, and then and then when I think about, it, I might come back and say we better study that. Yeah. Huh. Something I think about, I say it's not worthwhile. I've thought about it, and it's not worthwhile spending time on. And you know, some of these guys have those think winks. You know, Bill Gates goes away, Bezos does a little bit of that. Right. I've thought about doing that, but I I don't know if I need a week to do it, and um, I'm not that, sure I'd make a lot of progress during the week. Doesn't sound like you need it. I mean, you're doing yeah. this organically. Yeah, I, I think so. You know, yeah. I you always worry about whether you do enough. But yeah. uh, in the immediate sense, during the day, if it any gives you anxiety, and then big picture. What really makes you anxious late at night if you do? You know, traditionally in the bank, people would say it's, it's credit and risk and trading. It's really not that. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're totally in control of that. And yes, we're going to make mistakes. And I, and I don't really worry about mistakes. Uh, I worry about cyber, which we don't, we don't have to spend time here. Wow. I, I do think it's a really serious. We spend $700 million a year on it now. So it is a very serious issue. And we're quite good at it. But uh, the, I think that what gives you the most anxiety is people. Hmm. It's those people decisions. You know, if I, if I put the wrong person in a job, I won't know it for six or nine months. It'll take me six or nine months to replace them. That's 18 months of damage that's been done. And when I replace them, I may be wrong again. Huh. So that is, so, and you hurt, you can hurt people. Uh, you know, if I put the wrong person to job and, but you know, I, I know I hurt people. I've hurt their clients. I've hurt the company. I've hurt the, uh, uh, what gets me the most. So that's, that, that creates the most anxiety. Has your approach um, to hiring then changed with the years? I mean, oh yeah. 
Uh, we're much more thorough. I, first of all, it's a lot, lot less battlefield now. It's just before you, you're putting companies together and you're making quick decisions and you hope. But now it's much more. We really do that. Mm. We have time. We're, we are so far ahead in thinking about our people. That's more a very thoughtful process. And what are their possibilities? And what are we thinking about? We can have conversations with them. And, and we're, we're more direct. We say, look, you know, if we're going to give you this job, we need to do it for four years. Yeah. Don't, don't assume that if you do a great job in nine months, we're going to promote you. We're not. Mm. And so you, 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 you do get much better at it. And you're much more thorough process. And not a bureaucratic one. It's, just a, it's actually just much better. Uh, and you get better at making those decisions. You get you have much less errors. You have you name it. It is, it is far better. The other one, which I which which churns my gut, is bad public policy. Huh. I think we've really damaged our country. And I wrote about it in my chairman's letter. And I you know people talk about productivity and three percent growth. It's us. Hmm. We we become a stupid nation. We don't plan. We don't do analysis. We turn. You know, you go to China now. It's all practical. What works? What's get us done? You know, it's very commercial. We've and not ideological. You come here, and it's no longer practical. It's no longer analytical, and it's one hundred percent ideological. Uh-huh. I mean, it's it's staggering. Rich, and rich. so, and I went through the examples of of well, you know, we spent a lot of money in war. Whether you were for it or against, and I've never seen anyone tell me what that does to productivity. Huh. I you know, we have ten million people between the ages of 25 and 55 who would normally have been in the workforce who are not men. Now, don't tell me that's normal. Huh. Okay, that's 10% and more than in the, in, the, in the past. We haven't built a major airport in 20 years. China's built 75 in 10 years. It takes 10 years to get a per- permit to, to build the average bridge in Kandu, America. We, our roads, our airports, our water systems, our, our grid, our, our, our F, you know, our, what's it called, the FAA, the uh-huh. air traffic uh-huh. control system, they're all pathetic, and we do nothing. Our co- corporate tax system is driving people overseas. And I tell people, and our regulatory system has become so anti-business and crippling these businesses. And I went through examples in my chairman's letter because some of the regulators tell me, well, you know, we, there, no lending, we, it just didn't cut back lending. Oh, yes, it did. I gave very spe- one specific example in mortgages, like the lack of securitization rules, the lack of this, the lack of safe harbor, the lack of all these things. We think it's cut back mortgages by up to a trillion dollars a year. Huh. Cut that in half, $500 billion. That is, would have been a lot more new homes, a lot more household formation, and probably 02 to 0.3% of GDP per year on its own. And we could fix it tomorrow, but... And not, not to mention the jobs that we've created in construction. Yes, and I mean, plumbers I mean, and welders and roofers. I, I think I gave I think it was a million and a half jobs. Oh. And we'd probably be back to building not a million or a million two homes a year, but a million four. Right. That one thing. And by the way, you know what hurt? And this is what really offends me. Lower paid, prior defaults, self-employed, young, immigrant. Mm-hmm. Lower FICO, not subprime. You know, it's like, and of course, people say, "Oh, it's going on." Jamie just wants to go back to sub. I said, "No, I don't." <laughs> this is these are people who we all think should make a loan to. Yeah, the loss will be higher than the superprime, but that, so what? That's what a bank is supposed to do, you know. And small businesses, well, I, you know, it's somewhat anecdotal, but we, I, I talked to everyone how much they've cut back on small business lending, even in certain countries you cut back because the AML BSA, which I think was unfair to those countries. Huh. I think we hurt those countries, and. Um, you know, so I, I, that's what has me the most upset is what we, and we've hurt citizens. I do, you know, you can talk about populism and Trump. We left behind swaths of Americans with bad training, all the things we did, and we act like it just had to happen because that's what happens. And I just think it's untrue. I think if we fix these things, we'd be going a lot faster. Middle class incomes would be going up. Lower wages would be going up. Employment would be going up. Household formation would be going up. You know. Do you worry at all about just the, the quality the next generation of candidates, people who would po- run po- for elected office. Yeah. Well, I just think I if, think if you true. are a talented up-and-comer and you're a qualified, ambitious person, why on earth would you run for public office? I'd much rather, I'd rather work at J.P. Morgan. I mean, what, the, the, the incentives to run for public office have never been lower. And I think that's a deeply entrenched yeah, problem. I agree. I think gerrymandering's made it worse. Uh, I think the political system and, you know, their beneficiaries from this, like we torture them. You know, with these confirmation hearings and oh, digging into your past, and and you know, we it's it's terrible. I agree. However, there are some very good ones, so I don't want to blame the brush. And I call out and say, thank you for doing that. And I think people will do it. And I think people do care. And I think it, it probably is the most important thing for the future of the country. And so that that's a good enough reason, as far as I'm concerned. And and hopefully, some people will take up that. So that you mentioned cyber. Yeah. How do you look at how 
social norms, manners, and things have changed with the new media and the communications that we have now. I, I think it's terrible and superficial. Hmm. I look at that stuff like it's part of what's dumbing down. And I don't want to criticize just social media because media itself has actually blossomed in a good way. Hmm. You know, and on the other hand, the, the, the people's attention span has gotten shorter. Uh, <laughs> the people read less. Uh, you know, people will rant about something, and then they say, you guys should do A, B, and C. I said, well, we do A, B, and C. Well, I don't know about that. <laughs> well, because you didn't read it. You don't read. You didn't take the time. You didn't take the time. And and uh, so I think it is an issue, and I don't know what to do about it. I don't want to blame – you can't blame journalists, right? So it's not – I just don't think that's fair. But I think some of them are terrible. You, you're on TV, and they'll ask you a question. It's like always binary. Yeah. And the world's not binary. Mm-hmm. And they want to answer really quickly because they want to go to the next question in their list as opposed to, hmm. It's entertainment for them. And also – but also – Not substance. But a good one will say, oh, well, explain that to me because – Right. So you, you, you go with the next layer. You peel that onion a little bit. So The consumer base, you know, they're looking for uh, affirmation, not information. And it's all, you, you listen to young people talking today, everything is, begins with, well, I feel like, I and they talk about feelings yeah. are not facts. I think the young generation is fine. In my view, and I was in the young generation, you know, the pot smoking, anti-establishment, anti-Vietnam, long hair. Revolution. We would never mount that. We did okay. <laughs> and every generation I've heard, that generation is lazy and yeah. different. And it's always, and tree huggers and social matters. That's true for every generation. And I think that's a good thing. You know, we want people to have heart. We are doing less educating them about the world. So, yeah. it, like, I don't, I'm not sure people understand free enterprise anymore out of college. I'm not sure they understand uh, Western history. And you've had a lot of people writing about this. Huh. And I think it's been too biased to, to the far left of they teach in universities. But the kids learn. I was talking to a kid today, 32 years old, and she was talking about how she hated this and hated that when she graduated school. And now she realized how wrong it was. Huh. Like, what's the role of business? Like, what's the role of the bank? Like, you know, she grew up in the crisis, obviously, and they were just pounding away at banks. But uh, What would be Jamie Dimon's course? You taught a course, graduate school, but it could be on anything. Your syllabus of books. How to think. How to choose the right partner. How to think. How to think. How to think. Where do you start? I don't know. I'd have cases on how to think. Mistakes. Classical Greece. Including (laughs) yeah, including mistakes. Like I think you learn a lot by your own mistakes and by looking at mistakes and the anatomy of mistakes because you know we're all going to make them. So even history, you know, you read history, you can say, my God, wasn't that a mistake? Of Mm -hmm. course, you know, Mm -hmm. and hopefully mankind learns. Mankind has been learning. That, you know, the, the book I mentioned, The Better Angel of Nature, mankind is doing less murder today and less in the 20th century, all of the centuries. Less in this century than the last century, mm-hmm. in spite of what you read every day. Yeah. You, know, you never much, believe it by the daily press, but You never it's believe true. it. And, it, and it's because mankind over a thousand years invented things, not just technology, but think of institutions were technology. Police, right? School. Uh, uh, the various forms of government, even all the way back from kings to uh, democracies, you know, uh, morality. Mm-hmm. You know, the church was kind of the beginning of, there is a moral thing. Why We should treat people better. And, hey, you know, so all these things, in addition to real technology like agriculture and steam and all that kind of stuff. So mankind has gotten better. And I'm actually quite an optimist about it. But I'm, I'm upset about what we've done here in this country because I do think we've damaged ourselves um, and I'm like I'm very heartened by this guy got elected in France. Yeah, he's a friend actually. Oh, Macron. oh good. That's I and, hear great uh, things about him, and so. Uh, but I love the comment that Berlusconi made about him. He's a nice young man, and his mom's very good looking. Okay. <laughs> All of Berlusconi would say something like that. Faith is faith mm-hmm. important in your life? You know, I am not religious. Uh, but but I, you have good moral bearing. But I'm very moral. Yes. Yeah. And a guy <laughs> said to me once. He said. He asked me to go to church with him. It was the father of one of my best friends in college. I said, no, no, I, I don't go to church. They, they were Catholic. And he said, no, he's, I, he, I said, I'm not religious. He said, well, he said, Jamie, I, I've known you for years. He said, you are religious because do you believe in right and wrong? I said, absolutely, yeah. there's right and wrong. He said, well, that is religion. Huh. I had never really thought about it that way, that right, you know, if you believe in absolute right and wrong, then right is God. You know, and so, so I'm not religious, but I do believe in morality. I do believe there's a right and wrong. I do believe there's a right way to treat people. I do believe there's a, uh, the arc of history should lead to, you know, people being treated fairly and kindly and, and stuff like that. And um, You believe in charity and faith. Absolutely. Faith and- absolutely. And I believe in giving back. Yeah. I believe it is our responsibility. And, um, and so actually my chairman, I mentioned that collectively the leaders of society are to blame what happened here. Huh. 
You know, we should. And so you could be the head of a union, the head of a Washington thing, the head of the Fed, the head of big companies. Somewhere we screwed up. So if you're the average American, you don't say it was it wasn't their fault. Mm. You know, they were looking at the leaders and saying, we thought, guys, we thought you guys were doing a good job. Yeah. And obviously somewhere we weren't collectively. I'm not blaming everybody. I'm saying that is true. I think that fundamentally is true. And I think that, therefore, all leaders should think about what they should do to make it better for everybody. And it's not because people are selfish. A lot of companies, and we all have these corporate responsibility, but, but it's, it's so, in some ways you can bypass the worst parts of society. So you don't have to worry about it. I'm serving my customer. It's not, it's not that you're bad, but you should think about, okay, well, we do business in Detroit. We should help Detroit. Help the people of Detroit. It may, it'll be good for your business, but you also do it because it's the right thing to do. And, so, and I do believe that, which is why I believe corporate responsibility matters. Is there someone who uh, you admire, who you think sets a good example who, of your stature, but maybe a little bit older, who then has dedicated themselves to service and made things better and given back? You know, it, y- yes. Like like Bob Lipp, this guy who was my partner right. for years at, at uh, he's now with the uh, one of the, uh, he's, still, he's still working. He's like 78 years old, having a great time. Huh. I'm in China, and I, you know, he helped us work in the China post. took 10 years. We helped take it public. We helped advise them, and I'm having a management team meeting with their management. They're all talking about Bob Lip. Huh. I mean, as a labor love, he kept on going back just to help them and educate them. And then one of the guys, and then I, I found this out only recently. He says he goes there six times a year. He'd heard about a problem of a school somewhere. And he went and totally funded this school in some little town a couple hours outside of Beijing by himself. Huh. I mean, that, that, I, it's like, Bob, I called him and said, Bob, this is so wonderful. And he, meets the, he still goes and meets my management team, you know, the top people, like 50 people. And they all talk about Bob Lip. Huh. And so you, when you see that, he gives in a hundred different ways. Hmm. It's not that he's running a foundation. He's, given, he's not selfish. He's not about how much money he made. He's, he's, he doesn't need to get his name in the press. He feels good because he's doing good. My, I, I had toe surgery, a surgery, surgery in my foot the other day, and my doctor, I'm talking to him, I think he's a nice guy, and he starts telling me that him and his wife, what they're doing for the school in Nigeria, and how hard it is, and et cetera, et cetera, and uh, I'm just listening. And then he adopted a bunch of kids, Incredible. in addition to his kids. Amazing. And the next time I went, I said, Who, what's the name of the thing? And the next time I went, I brought him a large check. He said, <laughs> I wasn't telling you that for reason. I said, no, you weren't, but, but I think we're doing so great. Yeah. And you know, I'm not, you know, I mean, that's all I, right now, all I can do is write the check. But I mean, if you adopt kids who need help like that, and for you to, to go to Nigeria a couple of times a year and start this school and give it your, you know, your heart and stuff like that, I want to help you out. So there, there, I have millions of examples like that. When you meet somebody who really impresses you, you come across fascinating people all the time. You're a busy man. What systems do you have in place to maintain a connection? Just socialize and have uh, spouses dinner? Do you I, play you golf? Know, funny, I vacation? I have limited capability because I have so many things I have to do. Sure. So it, it is a little hard. I think it is one of the slight negative of being a CEO because you are on the road a lot. You you know, you, you might want to spend two hours on a long dinner. You can't because you got this thing you got to do in that country, that thing you got to do in that country. And they, they're at the higher hierarchy because of you're, you're responsible. Uh, but usually I remember them. I keep in touch. I read about them. I, I might write it down somewhere. I do have actually a list of names of people that I wouldn't normally remember. That I just thought were great. I just thought I met, I met your five. I forgot the first time I met, but I think I came to see you in your office. And I'm a little guy. But I mean, you were great just to follow up. And yeah. he, as I said at the beginning, to call me well, and we, and at a critical and point in both first, our lives. Right, but we spoke several times. Yes, we bumped into each other, and I see yeah. you on TV. And I know I complained about a report your economist yeah. wrote once, but but the, <laughs> but you, you know, but I'm saying, I, but yeah. you do, and so you make these little connections, and and I don't with everybody. Some I, I have no interest. Sure. And so you do. Uh, I tell people it's like on TV, and I'm sure you probably all do the same. Well, you, I don't know if you watch CNBC. <laughs> Some people you will never turn up the sound, yeah. and other people on you turn it up huh. because they've got something to say. Yeah. And no matter what you ask them, they, they, they're going to give you a little bit of insight you didn't know before. So, so I try to keep in touch with a lot of people. So I mean, th- this raised the question that we've talked to others about, and that is you're a CEO, you're driven, you have enormous responsibilities, obligations. Can you have balance in your life? Totally. First of all, I always tell our people at J.P. Morgan, and I really do mean this, and I do, every town hall, it is your job to take care of your mind, your body, your spirit, your soul, your friends, and your family. We can't do that. Hmm. You know, we, we, we help them. I tell them, we give you 
health and medical and pension. We give, we'll give you a shrink if you literally. I mean, mm-hmm. you got, if you're an emotional one, we're going to get you help. We help you stand up. If you've got a drug problem, we'll get you help and try to get you fixed. But we can't actually do those things. So, and you, now you're going to have a child. That's when it really becomes hard. You know, all of a sudden you have a higher responsibility. I also tell them that you can't, there's no such thing as quality time. If you don't have enough quantity, you don't get the quality. Mm-hmm. And so hanging out in that long car drive, walking the beach with them, hanging in the pool with them. You know, if you're always in a rush, looking at a watch, on the phone, you'll never have it. And, and uh, so it, it takes time. And you, uh, but it, So I, my life became a little bit of a barbell family. Uh-huh. And and uh, business and you know this company. My my hierarchy of values is family first, country next, J.P. Morgan down here. But I tell people it sounds contradictory. It's not the best I can do for country is J.P. Morgan, and family. I mean that that is my contribution. You know I keep, that's how I can contribute to a better society and a healthy, vibrant company and hire people and train people and uh, uh, so. But your question was a little different. No, I, th- I think that addressed the question, which mm-hmm. is, can you achieve balance when oh. you have such a high power job? So here's, well, here's, here's what you do. And I, I came home from a long trip once. I was literally in Asia for three weeks. And my daughter was sitting around the table. We were in Chicago. And they, one was in college and like two were in high school. And they were a bunch of friends. Mr. Diamond, are you gone this much all the time? I was, I was very serious. I said, yeah, I, I travel. I'm gone 10 weekends. And I was gone 10 weekends a year. But, the, uh, but my girls all said, almost in said, you weren't gone that much. <laughs> Because, when, because the other thing, too, I was home. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I did stuff with them. I, mean, I, played ten, I dropped playing tennis with friends. I took them with the teacher to went to play tennis. Took them to the lunch, took them to the park. Uh, you know, if, if, if I, even, even during the crisis, I really would, like, tell them, stop, stop, shh. You know, be quiet. This is, I, say, I, I say, Richard, i got to call you back. Because they were number one. I did my work and the phone calls before they got up. They get up when they become teenagers and they got plenty of time in the morning. Yeah. And... Um, <laughs> And took all my family vacations, RV trips. So there, it was lots of time with the family. So I tell younger men, you know, and more the men than the women, you can't play golf both, day, both days. So it's very important for you to maintain your friendships, your gumas to go out, but you can't neglect the family. And therefore, family, I, I insist on family dinners. Even today, you know, people, my kids know when I'm home, there's going to be days there's family dinners. Huh. And Good. back then, they bitched and moaned and stuff, but they loved it. Yeah, and they remember the family dinners, the weekends, the vacations. They don't remember the ten weekends are gone. Sure, and and, and they'll so pass think, that on so to their children as well. Yeah, are you a fan of road trips? It sounds like you like getting on the road every now and then. Yeah. I, I did a several RV trips with my kids. Took them, we took them to Alaska, Grand Canyon, wow. Europe, Asia. Even when I was working, and the kids had those breaks at school. Right. If I was going on a trip, I would take them and a friend where I might work. You know, four days a week. So these kids have been with me on these trips to Australia and Korea and Japan and Thailand, and they go off and do stuff. And then you know, I, I may meet them for dinner on Thursday night, and we'll hang out on a Saturday and enjoy the town. Or uh, uh, so I always found, and I deal with each one of them. Sometimes alone, sometimes together. And uh, you know, we RVs. Did we, did we did that, but RVs is, are great because they don't have that invisible line in the back seat that one yeah. crosses over. And yeah, I, I <laughs> he's love, in my territory. I love RVs. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we did a lot of trips as a family. I think it's yeah. great. The only way yeah. to build a family. This is a bit of a random question, but um, what's the official sartorial policy at J.P. Morgan? <laughs> I mean, in in this increasingly informalized world yeah. and a lack of a sense of occasion. Obviously, you're meeting with clients. Uh, Jack and Ty, but even for the the kind of lowest on the bottom of the ladder, yeah. and and globally banking, have you seen that? Oh, it's strange, yeah. Did, does anyone really care? Not really. <laughs> I mean, for, for, first of all, it is important you not offend other people, right? So you know, if you meet with Koreans, they they yeah. they will think I'm being disrespectful. So I look at my calendar in the morning. I have a tie here, by the way. <laughs> I, so I so even if I didn't didn't wear a tie, which for our I, listeners were wearing ties, but Mr. Diamond is not. Yeah. So. <laughs> I really wear a tie. I will not wear a tie if I don't think I need to wear a tie. Yeah. But I have it here, and if I see a green on my list, and out of respect for them, and you know, even the Japanese now, you know, in June They're and in July, they don't wear ties anymore. You know, and that's well, they wear short sleeves in the summer too. Yeah, yeah. because of Fukushima and yeah. uh, Shima and. Um, uh, but we also give manager discretion now. So if you go to the trading floors, a lot of people are not, they're in business casual, hmm. you know, and because they don't need that. So right. you, people would wear different things. And so bankers, the investment bankers wear ties more often, you know, in the, in the branch we have uniforms, not uniforms, you, you can buy different stuff, but you can know it's, we want the clients and the, that they work for us. Huh. I think it's terrible when you walk in a place, you don't know who works for who. Yeah, exactly. And so, and the people like it. The shirts are nice and, you know, we help subsidize and all that stuff like that. So, um, 
So we have a lot of manager discretion. I always tell people, I don't want to tell people that you shouldn't wear torn jeans they sh- or flip-flops. They should have enough to know that that's not what we mean by <laughs> discretion. Or spending money I, buying wear, torn jeans. I'll wear that's jeans even on weird. Friday if I have no, nothing going on that I need to wear something for them. Yeah. So. Cutoffs, right? We're talking jean shorts? No. <laughs> no. I will wear shorts on weekends <laughs> when I come in the office. Is there any big issue, and we've talked about uh, a few just at large, but one issue with this country or the emerging generation, et cetera, that, that is not in the headlines as much that you think should be a larger part of the conversation? Yeah, I, think, I think education in colleges, yeah. Western civilization, free enterprise. And I'm not talking, you know, we talk about free enterprise, people talk about naked capitalism. Mm. I'm not talking about naked capital. I'm talking about freedom. You know, you, you get to do what you want to do and you get to do what you want to do and you want to start a business. We extol that, small business, starting business. But then, you know, somehow it becomes big companies. You, that's not the same. And of course, I believe in good regulation, but I think we've lost the, the thing about self-responsibility, mm. free enterprise, rugged individualism, uh, uh, and to in a bad way. Now, by the way, it always seems to change that, you know, our society always has this amazing resiliency with uh, how we go on. But you might run something differently than me, and I'm a, fine, we could both be successful. Right. And you might do it a third way and not be, but that, that's capitalism. Things work yeah. and they don't work and oh. they try. And, you know, if you say it's, everything's got to be run a certain way, you are doing the opposite of what you say is freedom. Mm. You're doing the opposite of letting people experiment and try and fail. But this is what regulators sort of drive you into in the end. Yes. Right? Take take oil. I mean, because you'd be very sensitive to this. Oil prices go from 100 to 50 to 25, and we have obviously have a lot of oil loans, a lot of these risk-based loans, reserve-based loans. We're taking the cash flow, lending against the cash flow of specific wells to entrepreneurs. You know, mm-hmm. and we're quite good at it, quite conservative. And the regulators made us downgrade all these loans, which is not atypical. But in the old days, if they made it go to non-pass, we'd have to put up capital reserves, but we still could have a judgment to roll it over, add some money, lend more, keep the company afloat. And then they came in and said, you can't make those loans anymore. You can't roll them over, can't make them. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. They, they said, no, it's, we don't think it's risky. I said, first of all, it's not your judgment call. I said, but, I said, but let me just tell you how I view a bank. I'm going to have to go to Houston and Dallas one day and stand in front of 100 oil folks, okay? And after this crisis is done. And one of two things is going to happen. One is they're going to throw bricks at me and say, you son of a bitch, in our tough times, you weren't here for us. You abandoned us. You abandoned us. And in our toughest times. I said, or I'm going to walk in there and, and they're going to say, hey, Jamie, thank you. And thank JP more in our toughest times. I said, I'd rather lose a billion dollars and have the second thing happen. Mm-hmm. Because we have to be there in tough times. And you guys are getting it completely backwards. And you know, they were question- we made this very complex loan to Argentina. I told them, we've been in Argentina for 75 years. They've got a great new president. He knows what he's doing. And yes, we might lose half a billion dollars. But if we lose half a billion dollars to try to get that country back on its feet, I'll feel great. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't even feel like I made a mistake. I feel like we did the right thing and we, it turned out wrong. I said, so you're, you're, they're causing these, all these things, like, like, like even small business, there was a little bit of taking risk on someone. You, know, you wanted to start a restaurant or buy a franchise or you know, someone's going to say, you know, I, I'll give Miles a chance. I'll give Miles a chance. You know, and that's, you know, you, you, anyone can look and say, well, why do you do that? He's never run a restaurant before. He's too young. Yeah. Uh, he's not putting enough money down. But that, that was what banks did. Mm. They were, you know, so, well, it was banks, based on character and know your customer. Exactly. Exactly. And, but Analytics you, takes but that you, away. But exactly. <laughs> you can't actually do that anymore. You might have a feel for the neighborhood and the value of the real estate. Yeah. And, and people were using, you know, unfortunately, using a lot of mortgage stuff to do some of that. And, um, and so we stifle it. Like, we, we don't. Uh, it is the reason why small business formation is lower than it's ever been in a major recovery in American history. Oh. Okay, and that is because of, uh, of regulation, uh, uh, and not uh, both in bank sides, which leads to loss of credit, but also other regulations. It's just so hard, you know, to start a business today, and uh, and this again, it's a mistake we made. So I don't know if this is an appropriate place, but I'm starting a restaurant, and I don't know. If it's <laughs> I'm just kidding. I remind people the banks. You know, we never got credit for it, and we didn't need TARP or anything like that. But banks lent trillions of dollars in those years at existing prices. The market didn't. You, know, yep. you were a market participant. Yep. You, know, you would say, as a market well, if I could buy bonds at 1,000 over, why would you lend do a loan at 200 over? Right. But we couldn't do that because we can bankrupt them. You know, so we just kept them lending at the same price because of, of the relationship. And that's true for countries. And it's true for clients. It's true for uh, 
you know, you better be there for people. And I, and I know we'll have a cycle and our profits go down and so be it. You know, they'll go back up one day. And also you would say to me, if you were on the board, say, well, if you're not, if you're not losing any money in credit, should you be taking a little more credit risk? <laughs> Middle market losses have been zero for four years. Yeah. Net. I noticed um, in David Rockefeller's uh, autobiography, he made a very interesting comment. Most people don't realize he had a PhD in economics. Yeah. He said, I would have done much better than having a PhD in economics. I could run Chase wisely had I had a credit course. Right. That, what a great statement that was. And yeah. of course, credit is not just analytics, yeah. as you just pointed out. Yeah. Oh, J.P. Morgan has another famous quote. I wouldn't lend all the. I wouldn't lend money. He said something about gold. He said I wouldn't lend money on all the gold in the universe. I didn't believe in the character. Yeah, it's, and they, it's, yeah, it's character. character. He said, yeah, it's character, yeah. and it is an important fact. It's not a model fact. All there, all these things are not model facts that we actually have to use. Yeah. Like, what do you think about the industry, the future trends, future tax things? All these things you can't put in a model, and yet they're maybe more important than than uh, you know just the history of the past and uh, so. Like, well, you, you've been good to give us a lot of time. I have one more question. Yep. Why the teddy bears that our audio listeners cannot hear? you got a row of teddy bears here. Yeah. And, and uh, if you see them, they're all different names on them. Because when I, was at, when I was at Smith Barney, I started practice. Whenever anyone had a baby, I'd send them a Smith Barney teddy bear, then a bank one teddy bear. <laughs> and you, you, see, you see the Morgan Chase yeah. little lab teddy bears. And I'll, Miles, I'll send you one when you have your baby. And I've always done that. Anyone I know has one, I send them teddy bears. <laughs> That's and, great. Uh, well, now we know how he stays up with people. <laughs> yeah. There, there, there are a couple of people here who've had met each other here, and they named their baby Chase. Or oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, well, so we appreciate your spending time with us, Jamie. Thanks so I much. You've been listening to Coffee with the Greats. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. It really helps others find and discover the show. Coffee with the Greats is produced by Blamo Media. Visit blamomedia.co to learn more.